Hello and welcome to RGU Talk, the official podcast of Robert Gordon University. I'm your host, Johnny Milne, and with me this week, I'm very happy to say, is a woman whose face and name have been all over the press since the start of the year, Professor of Communication and Media and Gender Equality Champion at RGU, Professor Sarah Pedersen. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. That's fine. Thank you for having me. Now... I say you've been all over the news over the past couple of months, but going even further back, you are something of a media superstar here at RGU, um, with your work being featured everywhere from the BBC to Playboy. And I hasten to add, your work was featured in Playboy. Um, That must have been an interesting email to get, I presume. In my defence, Johnny, (laughs) they did not ask me. Oh. That is um, the the quotes that Playboy print are are accurate quotes, um, and they're from me. About four years ago, I gave an interview to the Telegraph talking about changing body sizes, mm-hmm. and that article has been reused by more than Playboy. I apparently have been in the Lithuanian press commenting Fantastic. on uh, Lithuanian models and their changing breast size, um, and the Playboy article was the same. They just took quotes from the Telegraph, but they actually said, Professor Sarah Pedersen said in an interview to Playboy. Um, oh. So yeah, no, I did not speak to Playboy. I did not know about the interview until it was published, until um, I started getting emails from people saying, did you know you're in Playboy? (laughs) Well, controversial start there. That's (laughs) fantastic. Um, Well, we're here today, obviously, not to speak about Playboy. Um, Sorry to say, everyone. Um, We're here to talk about the 100-year anniversary of women being granted the vote in the UK. Now, you wrote a book called The Scottish Suffragettes and the Press and continue to research the movement still. What is it about the suffragettes that draws you in so much? Well, I'm particularly fascinated by the Scottish suffragettes because until very recently, nobody really knew about them. Everybody, when they talk about the suffragettes, sees it as a kind of a a London or possibly a Manchester-based organisation. But in fact, the suffragette movement was throughout the country and it was very, very important in Scotland, um, mainly because most of the uh, members of the Liberal government, uh, many of the, the, the top men, the prime minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, all had uh, Scottish constituencies. So the uh, suffrage protest movement uh, was very, very important up here. And we obviously now live in an age where every woman has the right to vote. Um, Am I right in thinking that wasn't actually the initial aim of the suffragettes, but they were only campaigning for the privileged few, as it were? Well, no. um, The the original aim of the suffragettes, and if you look look back into the 1870s, the suffrage suffrage movement comes from an enormous frustration amongst women that many of the issues related to marriage, to the care of children, and, and to other what we would call now women's issues, were not being addressed by Parliament. And the simple reason for that was because there were no women who had the vote, there were no women MPs. So the the, the aim was never really to give women the vote. Um, But yes, the majority of the suffrage campaigners were campaigning for the vote to be given to women as men have it. And you have to remember that until 1918, only 60% of men in the country had the vote. Um, So yes, it is a group of middle and upper class women campaigning to get the vote 
in the and upper class men had the vote. And the idea was that they would then use that vote to ameliorate the sufferings of their poorer sisters. But no, they weren't campaigning, or most of them were not campaigning for all women to get the vote for the simple reason that all men didn't have the vote. Okay, that, that obviously makes a lot more sense. Um, you said that when people you know, hadn't necessarily thought about the Scottish suffragettes and they were focusing on you know, London, perhaps even Manchester, most people have heard the name Emmeline Pankhurst, but your work's been focused on a much more local figure to the northeast of Scotland, Caroline Phillips. Can you tell us about her and the ongoing project that you've got there? Um, well, it's a Heritage Lottery funded project, um, and they've given me some money to do a variety of things. We are incredibly lucky in Aberdeen because we have a unique collection of correspondence between um, a branch of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, as the suffragettes were officially known, um, and the leadership in London. And that correspondence really is unique. Um, there's very, very little uh, correspondence or really any uh, material left from from the official WSPU, um, mainly because, uh, and this may sound controversial, in their latter years they were basically a terrorist organisation. And it was an organisation where um, the officers were raided frequently by the police. So you didn't keep lists of names and addresses and letters and things like that. So the fact that in Aberdeen we have this correspondence is is really amazing. And it's, um, uh, it's about 60 letters um, between Caroline Phillips, who was the honorary secretary of the Aberdeen branch of the WSPU, and the leadership in London. So we have letters from Emmeline Pankhurst, her daughter Christabel, um, Helen Fraser, who was the leader of the Scottish uh, WSPU. We have all these letters, and they're arranging militant action, and they're arranging processions, and they're discussing policy um, to to do with uh, suffragettes. So it's absolutely fascinating. And Caroline Phillips, am I right in thinking she was a journalist as well? Yes, she was. She was uh, one of the first women reporters in Aberdeen, and she worked for the more conservative Aberdeen Daily Journal. Um, And this actually caused her some problems. There are several letters um, in the the, the collection. One is from her editor, and he basically says, if you don't stop being involved in the affairs of the suffragettes, um, we're going to have to let you go because I've had complaints. Um, And there's another draft letter that she wrote. Um, I think it's to the the Liberal Party and she is complaining that they won't let her into meetings and she said you know I'm being sent here by my editor to do a job and you won't let me into meetings and of course they wouldn't let her in because they thought she was going to disrupt them as a suffragette Mm -hmm. so she really was putting her career on the line I mean and this was her livelihood she wasn't getting any money as an honorary secretary that meant you weren't paid Um, so she she was sort of balancing her 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 job her occupation with her commitment to the cause and I mean, are there any other kind of interesting insights that the all, the, all of the correspondence throws kind of either on ca- what Caroline was going through, but the time as well? Well. Uh, Caroline Phillips is a very interesting character because she tries basically to argue with the Pankhursts. Um, the Pankhursts want militant action and there's an occasion where Asquith, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, comes up to talk in Aberdeen at the Music Hall mm-hmm. and Caroline kind of tries to do a behind-the-scenes deal um, and says, look, I'm not speaking with total authority, but I think that headquarters in London need to understand that in Aberdeen we need independence of action and we won't be um, uh, doing any militant action. 
Commission. And when Mrs. Pankhurst hears of this, we immediately get a, uh, a letter saying that Mrs. Pankhurst is coming up to Aberdeen by the next train and she will be leading the militant action. Okay. And so it does go ahead. But I think that by that point then, the Pankhursts are beginning to be concerned about Caroline Phillips and her commitment as, as militancy grows and grows in the movement. Um, and there start to be critical letters sort of saying, what exactly are you doing? And then there's a, a final telegram, uh, which just says that Sylvia Pankhurst, another of the daughters, is coming up to Aberdeen to take over the movement and that Caroline is, is uh, immediately sacked. Okay. Um, and, and from that time onwards, there was never an Aberdonian woman who led the movement in Aberdeen. It was always somebody imposed from outside, either from the Central Belt or from England. Gosh, okay. Um, you say about the militant action. Um, I think when people think about the suffrage movement, it does conjure the image of you know Emily Davidson throwing herself in front of the king's horse, women chaining themselves to gates. But the more peaceful approach that obviously Caroline was trying to take was there much evidence of that kind of elsewhere in the country, or did things just continue to ramp up and get more and more militant? We have both. So um, from the 1870s, you have suffragists. They're um, constitutional suffragists who want to campaign uh, through letters to Parliament, through petitions, uh, to talking personally to, to MPs. And they've been trying to do this in a constitutional way for 40 years. Okay. Um, and that continues all the way to 1918. You have these constitutional suffragists, and they outnumber the suffragettes throughout the country. Uh, but we don't hear so much about them because, of course, the, the press loved to cover the more uh, militant action. Absolutely. And certainly in Scotland, we have that action. We have uh, the burning down of buildings. Ashley Road School, for example, in Aberdeen, they try to burn that down. Um, they uh, burn down uh, Lucas train station, a wing of St Andrews University. Then you have attacks on uh, portraits in the uh, uh, Glasgow's uh, gallery, art gallery. You have have um, the pouring of acid and um, incendiary devices into post boxes. You have uh, attempts to blow up Burns Cottage. You have attacks on the Wallace Monument. So you really do have militant action mm -hmm. from uh, after about 1910 until the outbreak of the First World War. And which approach do you think, in the end, was the more effective? Ah, well, the government, when the government gave women the vote in 1918, they definitely wanted to make sure that everybody knew that it was because of women's war work. Mm -hmm. um, they said it's because women have demonstrated the ability to be citizens and therefore we're giving them the vote. The government did not want to say, we're frightened that the bombs and the arson might start up again. Because, of course, obviously, they didn't want to say to anybody that bombs Bombs and arson might make a government change their mm -hmm. mind. And particularly the Irish question was bubbling away at that time as well. Um, so I think it's all three. I think the, it, it did concentrate their minds. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a genuine feeling in the country that women really had won the vote by their contribution to the war effort. And the fact that since 1870, you had had women sort of campaigning uh, continually. That, that sort of wore away the stone, I think. Okay. And... Moving more into the present day now, we've got, particularly with the rise of social media, you've got a lot more kind of movements with, you know, the Me Too movement, Time's Up, Pressing for Progress, all of that. What more do you think can be done to really bring 
men and women closer in terms of equality nowadays really make a difference nowadays? Oh, there's so much more to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, really, so much more. Um, we we don't have equality in in Parliament either in in down in in the House of Commons or in Holyrood. Um, What's the the that saying that says there are more men named John who are on the uh, FTSE 100 company boards than there are women? <laughs> Um, We need equality in in sort of every every, uh, area of Mm -hmm. life. Um, Professors in Scotland, I think it's 22% of Scottish professors are female. Um, So so everywhere we go, we still have a tremendous amount to do. The sort of campaigns you're talking about, we might describe them as the fourth wave of feminism, and we see the suffragettes as the first wave. We see women's lib in the 60s as the second wave. So... Potentially, this this harnessing of social media to give women a collective voice might very well be seen as a fourth wave. Um, and I actually read, uh, I think yesterday, that the World Economic Forum said that it could be another 217 years, which is a very specific number, until we get true gender parity. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, um, it, you know, since, since um, I've started teaching on this, that, that, uh, that achievement seems to move further and further away every <laughs> year. It's not getting any easier. It's mm-hmm. not getting any better. So, yes, I think that it, it, it probably is going to take that long. But the more that we get that information and that headline out to people, um, when I mention things like that to my students, they're always really shocked mm-hmm. and then very thoughtful. So the more that we tell people about that sort of thing, the more likely it is that it's going to come close. And the more people will want to do in the meantime. Yes. Um, final question, and I get it might be a big one, but in your mind, what is the true definition of feminism? <laughs> the, I know I just threw that one out. Yeah, <laughs> okay. The belief that men and women are equal. It's as simple as that. Um, there's a, a great line from a, a, a 1920s novelist who said, I always, uh, people always call me a feminist when I express views that distinguish me from a doormat. Excellent. That's a good one. (laughs) Um, Well, Professor Sarah Pedersen, on that, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And also, as an aside, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, thank you for being a fantastic dissertation supervisor (laughs) when I was a student here. Um, If it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't be here to speak to you today. (laughs) Um, But that's it for another edition of RGU Talk. On behalf of the university, I've been Johnny Milne, and we'll talk to you later.